Right. Well, thank you for bearing with us. Uh, and uh, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to all of you uh, to this LSE public lecture. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Paul Keenan. I'm a member of the International History Department. Um, and it's my great pleasure, then, uh, to welcome this evening uh, not only all of you, but also, of course, our speaker, Edward Lucas. Edward, uh, I'll speak about it in a little moment, but I just want to very quickly go over uh, the schedule for the evening. Edward will speak for 40 to 45 minutes, and his lecture will then be followed by uh, a period of uh, questions and answers. Uh, outside, you'll have seen on the way in, there is a bookstall selling copies of his brand new book, uh, and I've been told that he will then be available after the lecture. Uh, for a signing of said book. I am welcoming, of course, uh, Edward uh, this evening, but of course, in, in many ways, I should be welcoming him back, since uh, Edward is an alumnus uh, of the London School of Economics from the early 80s, graduating, I think, in 1983 uh, with a BSc in Economics. He is a very distinguished journalist with more than 25 years' experience reporting on Eastern and Central Europe and has very extensive uh, broadcast and print journalism output uh, from around 1986 onwards. He has been, uh, in his time, uh, the foreign correspondent for The Independent, uh, the BBC World Service. He was, of course, also managing editor uh, for uh, an English language newspaper uh, in Estonia, the Baltic Independent, uh, based in Tallinn in the early 90s. More than this, and perhaps the area that most of you will be familiar with him, uh, is his long association with The Economist magazine. Uh, he was the editorial director of the Economist Intelligence Unit in Vienna uh, and has served as its Berlin correspondent, uh, its Moscow bureau chief in the late 90s and early 2000s, and is now the international editor. His first major book, uh, The New Cold War, uh, subtitled How the Kremlin Menaces Russia and the West, was published in 2008 by Palgrave Macmillan, uh, with a revised paper edition coming out uh, with a new foreword by Norma Davis in 2009. Uh, its impact, I think, can be measured by the fact that it has been translated now into uh, 20 uh, other languages besides English. His new book, uh, published by Bloomsbury, is the book he's going to talk about this evening uh, in his lecture entitled uh, Inside East-West Espionage. Before I, I hand over to Edward for his, his lecture, I, I want to mention uh, just a, a couple of practicalities. First of all, uh, we hope that this lecture will be podcast, so those of you who want to revisit uh, the subject afterwards will be able to find it on the LSE's uh, website. Second of all, a very brief reminder for all of you to switch your mobile phones to silent. You don't have to switch them off. And this is because, of course, uh, akin with many of other LSE events, uh, there is a Twitter hashtag for those of you who wish to uh, participate in the discussion online with this, the hashtag in question being uh, hashtag uh, LSE Russia, but definitely on silent. We don't need any ringtones to uh, spice up uh, the evening's entertainment. So without further ado, then, I'll hand over to Edward Lucas uh, and let him uh, inform us about uh, East-West espionage. Well, um, thanks very much indeed. And it's, a, it's a great pleasure to be back here in the um, old theatre. I was a student here in the early 80s when any appearance up on this stage was met by a blizzard of paper darts. Um, if you were um, anywhere to the left of, uh, to the right of Leon Trotsky, you got attacked from one side. And if you were to the left of Genghis Khan, you were attacked on the, on the other side. So um, in the spirit of that, I would say that right at the beginning, I really enjoy hostile questions. And if you, if you want to just get up at the end and say that uh, everything I've said is just wonderful and um, you're very grateful, that's, that's fine, but you can save that for the end. I, I, I really appreciate 
people who engage with my arguments. And if, you, if I say something that even in the middle of the lecture you just want to um, get up and say, but that's nonsense, don't feel at all embarrassed. Just stick your hand up, and if I see you, I will, um, I'll stop and, and try and take it and, and take, take your question. Um, I, um, I wrote the new Cold War back in, in fact, I wrote it in 2007. It was published in 2008 because I was really worried by the way that Russia was going. And unfortunately, I would, I would have loved it if I'd been proved completely wrong. And not, in a way, the, the, the nicest thing that could have happened would have been if Russia had changed direction sharply and that all my fears had proved to be completely groundless and Russia had made friends with its neighbours, had reformed its economy, introduced the rule of law, had competitive multi-party elections, and all these ghosts of the past had proved just to be the paranoid fantasies of an old cold warrior trying to relive his glory days. One of the big messages of the new Cold War was about money. Um, I was very worried about the effect of Russian money in the city of London, in Austria, and in other places. Another big worry was about Russia's behaviour towards its neighbours, and perhaps the single most important message of the book was watch out, there's going to be a war in Georgia, and that, um, and that happened. This book's a bit different. It's, it's fo again, I look at the way in which the FSB regime, um, the ex-KGB regime, as one might also call it, misrules Russia, loots it to the tune of tens of billions of dollars and murders everybody um, who really gets in their way. Um, but I focus particularly on espionage, and, and I try and put it in a historical context um, in which Russia has, I would say, over the past 70 years, run rings around British and American intelligence services. Um, so I'm going to take you through some of the um, personalities and themes of the book, and we'll then look forward very much to your questions. I'm not going to cover everything, because that would require a week rather than just an evening and I want to leave time for questions so if you think I'm skating over something um, that's not because I'm trying to dodge the question it's just I'm trying to get on to the, the next bit um, as you very kindly mentioned the book's on sale outside and um, Václav Havel who I had the privilege to get to know in the days when he was an unemployed playwright in Czechoslovakia and I was a semi-unemployed freelance correspondent in Czechoslovakia in the communist era um, wrote a very kind endorsement, as did the brave and brilliant Oleg Gordievsky, who was um, the top MI6 man inside um, the KGB at the height of the, the Cold War, and probably saved us all from nuclear obliteration by um, telling the British that Andropov really believed that the West was planning a preemptive strike um, on, on, on the Soviet Union. This was in 1983 when I was doing my finals. Um, so I was very glad and grateful for many reasons that um, Gordievsky did this, not least to enable me to get my 2-1, but which I've been proud ever since. Um, but um, I kick off with the, um, with the book, really, with the case of Sergei Magnitsky. And I just don't, don't want to waste people's time. Hands up everyone here who knows who I mean by Sergei Magnitsky. Okay, well, I apologize to Joe and the others who are here, because I'm just going to have to talk, talk the other people through this a bit. That For me, the case of Magnitsky exemplifies why we should mind about this, because there are lots of countries that spy, there are lots of countries that, mis that are misruled, there are lots of countries which are, are geopolitical competitors. But I think the Magnitsky case really exemplifies something very important about Russia. Magnitsky was a lawyer. He was a bright, young lawyer 
Um, he was, had Western clients, he had Russian clients. He was the sort of person who make, made you really optimistic about the future. And he passionately believed in the rule of law. He thought that Russia was heading in the right direction and that maybe democracy would come perhaps later rather than sooner, but lawyers like him could really use the law to try and make Russia into um, a law-governed society. He exposed a fraud, a fraud of $230 million, um, which was stolen from the Russian people by Russian officials. It's a very complicated story, and I go into it in, at length in the, in, in the book. Um, the, it started with the expropriation of some companies belonging to a big British or British-based investor, Bill Browder, and then a bogus lawsuit in which these companies uh, agreed, though they didn't really agree because they were bogus lawyers were agreeing on their behalf, to, um, to having uh, caused a lot of damage, and then a judgment against those companies with the result that the profits they'd made weren't really profits, and the corporation tax that they'd paid wasn't really tax, and therefore the tax could be refunded. It's very complicated. And I want to say right at the beginning, I don't go into bat for Western companies that get into trouble in Russia. I was Moscow bureau chief for four years, and I constantly got Western companies phoning me up and saying, oh my goodness, we've bought plant X, or we've invested in Y, and guess what, these horrible Russians are trying to steal money from us. And I used to say to them, I'm sorry, if you go mud wrestling, expect to get dirty. You know, if you want a nice, safe business environment, invest in Switzerland. <laughs> if you invest in Russia, you may make a ton of money, you may lose all your money. But don't come crying to me. You, if you want to know what Russia's like, read The Economist, read the FT, we'll tell you. If you then decide on the basis of that to come in and you choose Russia over Nigeria or over Venezuela or over any other emerging market, well, that's fine. Good luck to you. But don't come blubbing to us because you've been badly treated. And, and I feel that very strongly. So I, although I know Bill Browder, who's this British investor, and I think he was quite badly treated, and I think it would be in Russia's interest to treat its investors better, I don't really care about that any more than I really care about BP or any of the other companies that got beaten up. But I do care a lot about Magnitsky, because he exposed a fraud not against Western investors who got a bloody nose. He exposed a fraud against the Russian people. And to give you an idea of what this was like, it was as if MI5 and the Home Office, with the backing of the MOD, and the Metropolitan Police, and the Serious Fraud Office, and the SFA, got together to conjure up a $230 million, a dollar, which is £160 million, tax refund, um, and took that from the Treasury with the connivance of everybody involved. And that would already be bad enough. And if that happened in Britain, we'd say, well, it's a huge scandal, and it'd be in the papers, and you'd get all sorts of people complaining about it, and something would happen. And in Russia, the only thing that really happened was that Magnitsky... Um, exposed it and started making complaints on behalf of his client. And what happened? He was arrested and he was put in jail. And that was already bad enough. And what was even worse, that he was then told by the Russian authorities, if you will turn switch sides and blame your boss, your client, for this fraud, then we'll let you go, otherwise you'll stay in prison. And Magnitsky being Magnitsky didn't do that. And he died in prison. He died a really horrible death. He got pancreatitis. He was denied medical treatment. He's put in hundreds 
of complaints about his treatment. He was kept in a cell with sewage bubbling all over the floor. He wasn't allowed to see his children. He never saw his children from the day he was arrested to the day he died. Um, he was treated really ab abominably. And the, the last day of his life, he was beaten systematically by eight riot police with Robert, Roger Truncheons, at which point he expired. And nobody has been punished for it. So if you cast your mind back to what I said about it would be like this in Britain, and then imagine at the end of this, a lawyer who exposes this and campaigns against it is arrested on bogus charges and beaten to death in Belmarsh Prison. That would be the, that would be the example. And this was not just a random crime. This was a systematic crime. This was the way that things work in Russia. And it has fingerprints all over it of the FSB. All the top people involved in this case were members of the FSB. The FSB is the Federalnaz Luzhba Bezpasnosti, which is the, the main successor organization of the, of, of the KGB. And it's a kind of criminal octopus which has tentacles within Russia and outside Russia. And is the kind of enforcer and, in a way, the beneficiary of the way in which, the, uh, uh, which, which Russia works. So I, I just want to kick off on that because I think that the, um, the magnitude, the sums of money, and the ruthlessness of the, of, the, of, of the regime often escape people here. We look at Russia and we say it's just another big emerging market, you know, bricks. Brazil, Russia, India, China. Well, actually, it's different. The, the criminality at the top and the way in which the procedures of the law and the institutions of state are used to extort money and to crush people who get in their way, I think, are, are, are unique. And I'm very, working for The Economist, I'm very suspicious of big round numbers, so I give this to you with a massive health warning. But Bill Browder, the, um, the, the guy whose companies were stolen, who's now campaigning for the vindication of, of Magnitsky and trying to have the people involved in this case banned from coming to Britain and to open, opening money laundering investigations against them for putting their proceeds into, London, into, into banks here. Bill Browder reckons the top people in Russia, the top thousand people, stole a trillion dollars in ten years. It's really quite a lot of money. It gives them a big incentive in keeping the regime the way it is. So you may say, well, that's all very bad. What's that got to do with, with espionage? Um, so I'm now going to introduce you to a guy called Donald Heathfield. And you, I doubt anybody, has anybody here heard of Donald Heathfield? Yes, Joe has, okay. It's my, my friend over there. Um, the reason why you haven't heard of Donald Heathfield is that everybody's heard of this lady. And she is obviously much more interesting than this chap. <laughs> Um, but I'm going to go back to Donald Heathfield because if you Donald Heathfield in a way was rather like Magnitsky he was a polyglot he was really well educated he'd been to the Kennedy School of Government he'd been to York University in Canada he'd been to one of the big French management schools and he had a successful career not as a lawyer but as a management consultant he was able to charge several thousand euros a day consulting for all the big international companies and the details in my, they all deny now that they had anything to do with him but they did and I've seen the, seen the documents um, he, um, so he was, a, he was a very successful international management consultant and if you put him under intense counterintelligence scrutiny you wouldn't have seen anything wrong, he had a birth certificate showing that he was born Donald Heathfield born in 1963 He'd genuinely been to all these universities. He was a genuinely good management consultant. He even wrote a book called, or a chapter of a book, called Scenarios for Success, which is, I hope no one here is, is anyone here doing management? I don't want to be rude. 
um, that it's written in that kind of classic, impenetrable management gobbledygook, <laughs> which they're able to charge a pound a word for, and I, do, I don't know how they do it. Um, he, was a, he was a specialist in, in, in future studies, which is the most, as Karl Popper, great LSE figure, would have sniffed, completely unfalsifiable. Um, but he would, um, he would go to the CEO or the CFO of a company and say, give me all your problems, and I will tell you how to, how to deal with them. And he even produced some decision-making software, which sounds very grand. It's actually a kind of Google calendar with a few bells and whistles attached. And he, was able to, and he, was, he gave this away for free, which people loved. He gave it away to governments, gave it away to, um, to companies, and um, was um, very keen to, to promote this software. And I think the people who happily installed this software on the computer might have been a little bit less enthusiastic if they'd known that his name wasn't really Donald Heathfield. His name was actually Andrei Bezrukov, and he was one of the most senior and successful officers of the, foreign, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service in the West. He was um, born in um, Siberia, and he went to Tomsk University before he had this glittering career in the West. And I was able to, um, with um, a bit of digging, to track down someone who'd been one of his classmates, um, a Russian woman, now American, living in the West. And she remembered him very clearly, and his wife, and how they'd gone from being studying in Tomsk and suddenly disappeared, just off the radar like that, and gone to Moscow in a way that everybody at Tomsk University knew meant that a powerful sponsor was taking an interest in him. And he was then um, had this, um, did this long academic career and very successful professional career. And we still, to this day, we don't really know what his... Um, what the damage was that, that, that he did. And as I explained the book, we have an idea of espionage based on watching James Bond movies, that if you want to steal secrets, you pick the lock, maybe blow up a few people, bed a few members of the opposite sex or something in, 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 in the process, pick a safe, get a big file out of it called secret documents, and then, um, <laughs> then bring, bring it back. But actually, espionage isn't like that. And I, I talked to hundreds of... Um, current and former um, intelligence officers in, in writing this book. And the thing that came across again and again was the importance of the passive asset, of the guy in the background who nobody notices, who just is able to see that that person's got a drink problem, that person is disappointed by being passed over for promotion, this person is, has got really serious money worries. These are the vulnerabilities. The person who can read the script so that then another intelligence officer comes in and homes in on the really vulnerable point and is able to extract the secret with whether whatever mixture of bribery or blackmail or flattery is needed. And I have a whole chapter in the book about spycraft and what, what spies really do. And my suspicion is that Heathfield's main asset was, being a, was, was that he was a passive, a watcher, someone who was able to sit, get into almost any company, into any organisation, many government agencies, get in there and see what was going on in a way that may, then other intelligence officers could, could take, take, advantage, take advantage of. But I also think, actually, um, that the, the era of these illegals these, um, is, is, is going. Is that they are kind of dinosaur because they, they, are, they come from a pre-digital age. The great weakness in Donald Heathfield's um, legend, his cover story, was that his birth certificate belong to a dead Canadian baby. And if you have a country where the birth register and the death register are digitized and integrated, 
it then becomes very obvious if someone is applying, applying for a passport on behalf of someone who actually died many years ago. The other problem for these people is, the, um, is that we no longer live in the hermetically sealed world of the Cold War. And this was exemplified by my friend who was a, a student, a fellow student. Um, she actually lives in California, and, but she goes to Harvard regularly. And she could have any point have bumped into Andrei Bezrukov and his wife, Lena Pavilova, um, as they were wandering. They, they lived in Boston. They were constantly going to the Kennedy School to alumni events. And she would have bumped in. She would recognize them at once. And she said, hi, you know, Andre, long time no see. How are you? And his entire legend, this incredibly expensive um, legend created with so much effort by the um, SVR, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, would have just blown apart. You know, what possible explanation is there for this guy, who's actually Andrei Bezrukov from Tomsk, to be living in Harvard as, 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 um, as Donald Heathfield? So although I think you know, this was a, a big feature of the Cold War, I think that the, these old-style legals are a declining threat. There are still quite a lot of them about, and we still catch them quite a lot, but I don't think they can make new ones anymore. I'm much more worried about what I call in the book the new illegals, and we caught two of them in the roundup in um, America in the summer of 2010. Um, she was one, and the other guy was a uh, plump young man called Mikhail Semenyenko, who doesn't look like that, and the result is nobody wrote about him, although I think he was probably actually a rather more effective spy. But in the book, I, I, I was very interested in Alan Chapman, not because of the things the tabloids reported about. The tabloids were absolutely obsessed with this idea that young Russian woman has breasts, has sex, has boyfriends. And they thought that was really, really important, and they splashed it all over the news of the world. So, and I was much more interested in what she'd been doing in Britain while she was, while she was here, because this was glossed over very much. She, she'd been to a few nightclubs. There was, had she been tasked with trying to get Prince Harry into bed? Answer, probably not. And so, you know, end, as far as the Daily Mail was concerned, end of story. So I thought it would be worth trying to investigate a bit what she'd really been, been up to. And this was one of the sort of the big, um, big chunks of the book. And I'm going to skim over it a bit because I don't want, A, I don't want you to escape the chance of buying the book, and B, we've got to get on to other things. But she ran a company when she was here called Southern Union. And Southern Union was a really odd company. It had it'd been set up by um, someone who had links with Zimbabwe and a money transfer company in Zimbabwe. And it transferred quite a lot of money around the world, which is itself quite interesting for intelligence um, services, because the ability to transfer money anonymously or, or privately is, is quite useful. But the thing that really struck me is it had another director called Stephen Sugden. And I thought, who is this Stephen Sugden? Because according to the papers, he lived in Tunbridge Wells. So I tracked down Stephen Sugden in Tunbridge Wells and found a very decent electrician. Um, a guy who installs IT systems, who had been lived absolutely blameless life, never been to Russia, never been to Stoke Newington, which is where Anna Chapman lived, and certainly never met her, and was suddenly approached, uh, grilled by MI5, who thought he was a Russian illegal. And he was quite surprised by this. And um, he was even more surprised when he found that his name and his date of birth and his signature were all on the company documents of Southern Union. And I used the advanced investigative techniques of um, Google and um, the internet to go to company's house and dig up all the documents of Southern Union, try and find a bit more about this 
phony Stephen Sugden and who he was and where he came from. And it turned out that he was using an address in Dublin, and I used the advanced investigative tool of Facebook um, to find a Facebook friend of mine living in Dublin who used the advanced investigative t um, tool of getting on a bus and going round there to ring on the doorbell at this address and found that there was a family in Dublin who had owned this house for 20 years, had no idea that it was being given as the registered address of this phony, um, of, of phony Stephen Sugden, phony Southern Union. And at the end of this, I came to some conclusions, which I'm not going to say publicly now, because we're on the record and I don't want to get sued. Um, but what was very clear to me was that there were completely innocent people who had been caught up in what could be something to do with Russian intelligence, could be something to do with organised crime and money laundering in Zimbabwe, or possibly a mixture of the two, and they had absolutely no redress. And this guy, Stephen Sugden, who has, of, 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 of Tunbridge Wells, is still on the books company's house as the director of this company, which he has nothing to do with. His signature's there. According to the company accounts, it's made him a very large loan, which he hasn't paid back. And nobody will help him. MI5 won't help him, because they say their job is to catch criminals, not is to catch spies, not criminals. The police won't help him, because they say they can't see the crimes being committed. Company's house won't help him, because they say it's not their job to verify the information that's submitted. They just record it. The Irish police won't help him. Nobody, I mean, in the end, it was only me, and I would, all I could do was write a book about it. But I thought this really showed the way in which these kind of, whether it's organised crime or intelligence or mixture of the two, these games played by the Russian criminal state can suck in people um, in this country, completely blameless people, and leave, leave them with no redress. There's a great deal more about this in the book. Now, you may be saying, OK, well, hang on a moment. What about, doesn't the West spy on Russia? And indeed, we do. And occasionally we get it right. Um, more often, I think we get it wrong. And so I have a bit of a historical background in the book, which I shall go into in uh, a, a rather sketchy detail here. Um, but does anybody know who I mean by Paul Dukes? Gosh, fantastic. Oh, Joe, okay, my friend knows. Um, Paul Dukes is, pro is, I think, without doubt, the most successful British spy in Russia ever. He's the only spy in the history of MI6 to have been knighted for his services in the field. And he was a really successful illegal. He did to Russia what Russia does to us with Anna Chapman and Heathfield and so on. Unfortunately, it was a very long time ago, and I don't think it's been re replicated since. But he was um, disguised as a tramp, played the piano in the canteen of the military high command in Petrograd at the height of the Russian Civil War. That was a pretty good place for agent running. And he spoke absolutely fantastic Russian. He was also a very good pianist. It would be difficult if he could have only played chopsticks. He was, he, luckily, he'd been a concert pianist before he became a spy. And um, so I, I feature him, really, for sentimental reasons in the book, just to see the heights which we once reached and the depths, as a contrast, to the depths that we've sunk to since. But just, really, for no particular reason, because it's a fun anecdote. Um, his biggest problem was the incompetence of MI6 back in, in London, that he needed, as spies always need, lots and lots of money. And he was desperate for lots of rubles to run his network. And MI6 sent him rubles who had been forged in London, but they were such poor quality that the water they were done with ink that ran when they got wet, not a feature of good banknotes. And there's a marvellous scene in his memoirs. He's hiding in a tomb in a cemetery in, in Petrograd and gets an oilskin package of these um, forged rubles. And as the raindrops start coming in through the roof of the tomb, he sees the water running, he rounds his screw. 
And he then borrows money from what I suppose nowadays we call the British Chamber of Commerce in Petrograd, which was um, the British merchants who were sort of hanging on there. And this was a great risk to, to them because the Chekhar could have been after them and done, done bad things to them. He borrowed a very large sum of money from them to run his operation. And then he was eventually exfiltrated out into, into the West and they left as well. And a couple of years later, they turned up in London and went to MI6 and said, um, um, you owe us quite a lot of money, to which MI6 said, where's your paperwork? <laughs> and Paul Dukes, to his great credit, I'll move on instantly because this is a really historical detour, went to MI6, from which he'd by then retired, and said, I will renounce my knighthood and renounce it publicly and explain why, unless you honour this debt, which I think is probably the way, way to treat these people. And um, at this point, scared of the publicity, they then settled their debt. Um, I was going to play you um, this clip here, which is of another debt, very briefly. This is one of the spies who was left in the cold from an operation which I just go into in, in the book called Operation Jungle, which is the single most disastrous operation in the history of MI6, where we dispatched dozens and dozens of Estonian, Latvians and Lithuanians to um, the Soviet Union um, at the height of the Cold War in the hope that they could both um, fight a partisan war and spy on the Russians. And most of them were betrayed, most of them were killed. They did tremendous damage because the whole operation was penetrated. And this chap, um, Sigmund Skudierka, who, if the video was working, I could then play you a clip, um, was caught and sent to the Gulag and treated very harshly. And he's speaking here in English about how, um, how cross he feels. Um, and just on the bright side, this is a photo you will have never seen before. Even Joe hasn't seen this photo before. This is um, to our left here, my left, your right. Um, Voldemar Kik is the second most successful agent in the history of MI6 in the Soviet Union, I suspect, um, who um, did a clandestine mission which was not blown. And he's here crossing the um, Soviet-Norwegian border in the summer of 1952, being met by his very happy MI6 case officer, who I see is carrying a, a gun for safekeeping. Anyway, there's, a, there's a lot more about that, that in the book as well. That's just historical detail. Um, anyway, moving on to the present. Um, this guy, Herman Singh, um, is um, the most successful Russian spy in the post-war era. Um, he was the top Estonian national security official and was at the absolute heart of NATO's security for a period of about eight years. And Estonia was a kind of poster child for Estonia, and actually for, for Britain as well. We dived in in 1992 when Estonia became independent, or regained its independence. MI6 teamed up very enthusiastically and very productively with the Estonian intelligence service. And we thought that we were really onto a good thing, both there and else, elsewhere in Eastern Europe. And as I show in the book, I think in, a, in many ways we were, but we were hideously unprepared for the kind of human landmines that the Soviet Empire had left behind as it retreated. And one of them was this chap. He'd been a policeman in Soviet Estonia. And we should have probably um, been rather more um, sceptical about how you could be a senior policeman in Soviet Estonia without having some kind of KGB connection. But anyway, we weren't. And neither were the Estonians, um, chiefly because he had the great good fortune of being sacked by some centre-left politicians who the centre-right politicians in Estonia didn't like. And so therefore, kind of my enemy's enemy is my friend, and they um, adopted him and gave him a very good job at the Defence Ministry, and he became, first of all, head of information, then head of security. And then as Estonia started moving towards, um, towards NATO, um, he got a top NATO security classification. And then Estonia joined NATO in 2004, along with the other 
um, East European countries. And so he was absolutely on the inside. And according to the NATO Office of Security, he's the most damaging spy in the history of NATO because he told the Russians absolutely everything. Just to give you one example, there was a, a meeting in Brunson in the Netherlands of NATO counterintelligence services where every country in NATO gave a presentation on what they were worried about from Russian intelligence. They said, yeah, these are the people at the embassy we're worried about, this is the pattern of activity we're worried about, this is the progress we've made, and this was all put on a CD. Um, apart from one rather canny American who decided it would be better not to put it on a CD, but all the other presentations put on a CD, and it was on Putin's desk the next morning. Now, in a way, I don't really mind about that, because actually NATO doesn't have any secrets. NATO's secret means the economist doesn't know about it. It doesn't mean the Russians don't know about it. And in an alliance of 27 countries, inevitably things are going to leak out. And I make no particular pejorative mentions here, but if you've got you know, Greeks and Bulgarians, Czechs and Lithuanians and Brits and Americans and whatever, you know, there's going to be leaks. So the idea that NATO secrets are really secrets is, is, is quite fanciful. And what was particularly ironic about this was that at the time at which Sim was, had his maximum influence, NATO really didn't have any secrets the Russians were very worried about. Sim was tasked by his case officer, who was another Russian illegal, with finding out the secret NATO plan to attack Russia from Estonia. Because from the Russian point of view, if the, the only reason why the West would bring Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania into the Western alliance would be because we had a secret plan to attack and dismember Russia. And it's obvious, think about it. Why else would you bring in these three, uh, three small countries? And so Sim was tasked with finding out where's the secret NATO base, what's NATO up to. Uh, what, and the trouble was there wasn't any attack plan. In fact, there wasn't even any defense plan because NATO was so worried about Russian feelings that when Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and the other countries joined NATO, um, NATO made no contingency plans to, to, to defend them. In fact, the Threat Assessment Committee in NATO, MC161, was explicitly discounted on American orders from even drawing up a conceptual idea of what a military threat from Russia would look like. So we were so keen to show the Russians that we treated them as friends. So poor Sim was sent off to go basically hunt the unicorn. You know, somewhere in LSE there is a unicorn. We know they're keeping it hidden. You've got to find it. And there he was, going to the St. Clements building, Clements building, the old, you know, all, all around LSE, looking for it. And, it. and it was a kind of paradoxical thing that he, that the more he said he couldn't find, he couldn't find this thing, the more his case officers was saying, was saying, look harder. So in a way, I think perhaps he was, um, yeah, he, he, he wasn't that damaging um, to NATO. But what he did do was a lot of damage to Estonia, um, which I get into in the book. And he also exemplified the problem um, that we are very bad at catching these sort of people. It was a, a pure lucky break that we were able to catch Sim. In fact, we had two lucky breaks. His case officer was deeply incompetent, and we'd also managed to, the Americans managed to recruit the number two in the foreign inter, Russian Foreign Intelligence Department dealing with illegals. So you put those things two together, you'd have to be um, really quite, quite stupid not, not to be able to catch Sim. But the big point of the book is that Russia's really good at spying. We get the occasional lucky break, but they take this really, really seriously. It's a big deal. Putin loves secret information. He spends a lot of time, we know this, he spends a lot of time every day reading stuff from the SVR, from the FSB, and from the GRU, the three main, and from, and from electronic intelligence as well. And they're willing to put a lot of resources into things that we would think were completely pointless. 
I quote in the book a brilliant piece of CIA um, uh, sort of analysis of spycraft about why it's not worth putting deep cover officers on long-term assignments in foreign countries. It's declassified. It was, I found it on the CIA website. It wasn't, no, no, I'm using, again, the advanced investigative technique of Google. Um, but it explains very clearly what is the point of recruiting 30 or 40 really expensive um, you know, top quantity graduates, putting them through all this training, and then deploying them all over the place just in case they're needed. Well, from an American point of view, or from a British point of view, indeed. I mean, I guess you know, if you're doing a yeah, you're doing your master's here in international relations, you have to speak very good Russian, and MI6 comes along to you and says, we've got this great idea, would you like to go and live in Tomsk for the next 30 years, pretending to be a management consultant just in case we can use you? You probably say, no thanks very much, I'd rather work for McKinsey's, and that's kind of normal. And in fact, MI6 wouldn't even think of doing that, because it'd be very expensive for them, and probably pretty pointless. But from a Russian point of view, this makes complete sense. You've got lots and lots of people, um, so deploy them all over the place and see if they come in handy. So there's kind of asymmetry in the way they think and, and the way we think. And our very open and trusting system is just not set up to scrutinise people. We take people at face value, and if someone says, I'm Donald Heathfield, I'm a management consultant, we say, that's great, how much do you charge? And he says, I've got decision-making software, and we say, that's great, I'll install it on my laptop, it may, may work. And so there's a kind of asymmetry um, in that as well. Now, I could drone on for another kind of five hours, because I've only scratched the surface of all the wonderfully exciting things in my book. But I think instead I'll stop, sit down, and, um, and take your questions. Excellent. Well, we'll move on to the Q&A then. Um, now, as you'll have seen, we have merry helpers here in red polo tops who are passing around microphones for those who have a question. So, the way this will work is we have uh, the lower floor and we have the upper floor. If you put your hands up and wait for the microphone to get to you so that we can hear the question, uh, and it needs to be a question, incidentally, we'll take them one at a time initially, and then towards the end of the evening, we start to run at a time, maybe we'll take batches of them. Okay, so hands up and, and we'll move the, the microphones around the room. Chap down there. Chap down there. Oh, yes. Down here at the front. Blonde chap first or, or yeah. blonde chap first? Uh, yeah, hi. Is Heathfield's uh, software, have you got any feel for, was that doing anything nasty, sending everyone's data back to Russia or something like that? Um, the version I've seen, I mean, I'm, I'm not a geek, so I can't, you know, I, I mean, I, I've... I have various problems in getting, getting, getting hold of it, but the, um, I know the guy who designed it, and he's a reputable software designer. Um, he did, it does have the capacity to be updated. So all he can say is that if you installed this, and if someone who was technically competent knew what to do, they could um, get it to install updates, and those updates could be all sorts of things. But the, the initial version is, a, is absolutely plain vanilla. It's not, there's nothing sinister. And, but we do know it was installed on nodes because um, it was um, one of Heathfield's big targets was something called the UN Futures Programme, which has um, signed up governments all over the world. And he was very keen to get it installed on government computers. So I think the fact that he was keen to get it installed suggests that he wasn't simply... And the fact that he didn't charge for it um, and he was even willing to pay... In one case, there was one guy who was, he was very keen to get it installed with, and he even said, I will pay for an intern to run it for you. It makes me think there must have been some sort of ulterior motive. 
just check there, white shirt. White shirt, did you have a, a question as well? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then we'll, we'll come to you. Um, it's kind of related to that question, actually. Um, with the advent of cyber espionage, which is a lot cheaper, you need all sorts of geeks and computer experts can do it. Um, and America arguably leads the world on that. Is there a chance for the uh, the West to sort of rebalance the equation in terms of espionage? Um, I, I mean, it's, it's an enormous question, and people spend year. You, know, you can do a uh, you can spend a year thinking about that. And there are people who believe that in the end, you can find out anything you want through signals intelligence. Yeah, if you can read the phone calls, uh, you read the emails, listen in on the phone calls, and bug the rooms, it's as good as being there. I, maybe sort of generationally, I'm a bit of a luddite, but I, I think that there's something about human intelligence which, although it's risky and expensive and can send you up the wrong path very easily, for example, believing that there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and things like that. Um, I think you can't get away from it. That in the end, if you, particularly getting the, the sense of vulnerability, that if you, you know, you're trying to find the one guy on the, say you've got a British energy company, which you need to get some, you're the Russians, you need to find out something about a British energy company which will allow you to do a deal which will be very valuable for the, for, for the, for the Russians, one of these classic sort of business intelligence overlaps. And you need to get some information on that company. There's going to be a board member, and you've got to crack that board. I think if you need to find the guy who's going to crack, you need to have you know, a secretary in the you know, CEO's office who knows all the board members and who gives you a feel for the who's got alcohol in his breath after lunch. You know, who comes in with a black eye because they're being beaten up by their husband? Who has got you know, colossal expenses when they go away, which suggests they're up to no good? And there's the sort of feel for that that you get from human intelligence that you don't get from, 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 and I think cyber is hugely important and in a kind of cyber warfare point of view I think we're terribly unprepared and, uh, and the cyber, cyber attacks that we've, we've seen are, are quite scary and there's probably more coming and we're quite good at doing it to them and you know, they're probably quite good at doing, doing it to us but I think yeah, that's evolving but I think what my, in my book's about is about this sort of the old fashioned business of espionage which is the source, the case officer, agent elicitation, you know, recruitment elicitation, and analysing the intelligence, making sense of it, and then doing something with it. And I think that's never going to go away. Mm. Just on that point, incidentally, one of the things struck me about the, the section of the book where you talk about um, what you call SIGINT is that on both sides, the Americans in particular with the NSA, and also with um, the, the Russians, this uh, comment you make about the fact that Putin spends two, three hours a day sifting through material himself, we don't lack for signals intelligence. Mm. Um, I mean, the sheer amount of stuff that we pull every day from communications is immense, but it actually requires then, I think your argument is, somebody to sit down and sift through the material and find something yes. useful. Well, it's, it's the most difficult thing. I mean, in a way, the most difficult thing in intelligence is making sense of what you've got. Anybody can come in and pile, you know, I can come in here and put 10 piles of paper on your desk and say, these are all secret documents and you can spend a week reading through trying to make sense of them. And I, and I, I, mean, I, I discovered this when I was, trying to, I was working in the KGB archives, the historical bit of the book, that the amount of, you, you read hours and hours and hours of very, very boring stuff in Russian, um, all you know, carbon paper copies, and it's really hard work, just trying, to find, it's just trying to make sense of what's going on. Whereas you find one guy who can tell you, 
look for the details of Operation X or Agent Y, and then suddenly you're in there. Oh, it's depressing. Sounds an awful lot like my uh, my PhD. There, sifting through hours and hours and hours of material. Sadly, because I work it's, on the 18th century. Yaroslav at the back. Uh, I think we had we had a chap with a tie oh, sorry. there. So chap with a tie first, yes. Yeah, and then we'll go to Yaroslav at the back. Chap with a tie there. Yeah. There we go. What what do you think it will take for Russia to become sort of democratically stable in the sense that there's not all this sort of all this sort of all this sort of human intelligence seeking and spying and spying and excessive spying happening because I mean I know spying does happen in Britain I've never met any spies to my knowledge but I know it does happen but um but I know that from in the if you go back to even like the early 1900s in Russia they had things such as the Okhrana and then during Stalin's time they had the NKV NKVD and still now even Russia's not the most democratically stable country. Yes. What do yeah. you think? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's basically, I mean, as I point out in the book, there's, there's really strong institutional continuity from the Cheka through the OGPU and MGB and NKVD and KGB and now FSB, and it's very much the same mentality. It's a xenophobic, paranoid, brutal, conspiratorial. Um, and, it, and I think the big difference with Russia now is that whereas in the Soviet period these guys were the sword and shield of, shield of the party but they weren't actually running it and even Andropov who was an ex-KGB guy wasn't and he, he, he'd been head of the KGB but he wasn't actually a sort of career KGB officer and since late 1999 with Putin they've actually been running the show and that's a big difference and I um, I was the Moscow bureau chief of the Economist at the time and it was really tricky because everybody else was saying, this is great, finally we've got someone in charge who takes phone calls, he's sober, you know, turns out to work, he's, you know, everything Yeltsin wasn't. And the fact that he's you know, KGB, if anything, it's a plus because you know, they were really efficient. Whereas for me, this was like having a former Gestapo officer running Germany. You know, given the history, this was really, really bad. And all my kind of singles out, or my, 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 you know, for many, many years of dealing with the, the region, even at that stage, was that this was bad, and I think that what's happened since has has has, has you know, justified those fears, because um, the the kind of Czechist mentality is antithetical to well-functioning institutions. It's all about power, who does what to whom, as Lenin so infamously said. Um, it's and it's secret and it's greedy and it's it's ruthless and it's. Um, very much bound up with the idea of Russia as sort of very, very, or the Soviet Union before that as a very special, um, special sort of great player, der, der Java. And, and I think the, we'll probably look back on the 1990s and think in years to come, think actually that wasn't so bad given the sort of hollowing out of institutions that happened since. But your question was also asking what's going to happen, you know, how long will it last? And I think there you have to separate the kind of the regime and the personality of, of Putin and, and the business model. And they're all slightly different. I think the personality of Putin's taken a tremendous knock. You know, the, I, I really implore you, if you, particularly if you speak Russian, but even if you don't, go onto YouTube and watch the video of the, martial, the mixed martial arts contest in November, where Putin very unwisely turned, this is where, it was one of these kind of, kind of things that, you know, 
and doesn't particularly appeal to me. It wasn't a sport at LSE when I was here. Uh, but it was the sort of way you can do any all-in fighting, but eye gouging is not allowed. And the Russian beat the American. And Putin very unwisely turned up in the, in the ring to congratulate the winner. And he got booed and whistled. And this is an amazing flicker. You can freeze frame it on YouTube, where he suddenly realised he's not being cheered. I think it's the first time since the East Germany was collapsing and he was trying to stop them storming the KGB building in, in, Dre in Dresden in 1989. It was the first time since then he'd suddenly felt that the crowd was against him. And he's become, although he, yeah, he can turn out the vote, he can't get the sort of, the, the cheers that he's used to. And it's really quite sad if you watch the, the big rallies that he had during the election. And he's doing this sort of rah, rah, rah kind of, you know, um, cheerleading and the crowd are going yeah yeah whatever yeah, they, they're, just, they're just not that enthused by him anymore it's a huge change from 10 years ago if he, 10 years ago if he'd said all Russians have to wear orange trousers and blue hats for the sake of the country they'd have done it because they were so fed up with the 1990s and here's the guys in charge you know, paint the Kremlin blue, wear blue hats we'll do it and so I think he's, he's really hold below the waterline and my own guess is I'm not sure he's going to last the full six years I think the regime uh, then there's the business model. The business model is based on bureaucratic rent collection and natural resource rent collection. It's very inefficient, and the corruption is sort of expanding all the time. And I think, it, and it depends on a high and rising oil price, which is an, you know, when Putin took over to balance the budget, oil had to be twenty dollars a barrel. Now it's one hundred and twenty. And that's not because they've got these sort of fantastically wonderful LSE-style universities and high-speed railways and things that need money. It's because the system's so inefficient. So I think the, you know, this model is basically broken. They're going to have to try and reboot it somehow. And then there's the question of the regime, and I think the regime is probably is the most durable bit. So they can chuck Putin overboard, they can rejig the bottle, but you know, for the, these guys to leave power and to leave behind a, a system that gives them tens of billions of dollars is going to be a very big deal. But ultimately, Russians don't like it. There's a big change. And democracy, which you mentioned in your question, very loaded word. You know, democracy in Russia, it sounds kind of echoes the 1990s of the, you know, all these horrible things that happened. But do Russians want truth? Yes. They want dignity? Yes. They want justice? Yes. Just like we do. And this regime doesn't deliver it. I have two questions. The first relates uh, to uh, whether Russia and the Russian intelligence services understand that the world is changing, that, it's now, that we don't have Cold War now, that probably the, the largest threat to Russia is China now because of its territory, because of its population. And so why, and do they care about it, and are, are they doing anything in this direction? And the second question is, uh, I would imagine that it's relatively easy for, for uh, Russian intelligence service to infiltrate the former Soviet Union countries, uh, Estonia or Belarus or Ukraine or Kazakhstan. So do you have any evidence of the role security services are playing in those countries? Thank you. Right. Um, I think that the world has changed and the Russian leadership's mindset hasn't. And I remember interviewing Primakov um, in the 1990s when he was talking about the multipolar world and my feeling was be careful what you wish for because there is a multipolar world now but Russia's not really a pole in it 
and Russia's too weak. Yeah, Russia can be, it doesn't want to be an adjunct to China, that would be the alliance between the rabbit and the Birkenstricter. It can't be a sort of ally of the Muslim world, of, you know, not that there is a Muslim world, but it can't team up with kind of Iran or Saudi Arabia or anything like that, that's, too, that's not going to happen. And it's sort of neurotically unable to team up with, 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 with the West because of um, the sort of this Czechist mindset. So they're a bit stuck, really. And I think the long-term future for Russia absolutely is to be a bit like, you know, it's rather like Japan, so not geographically in the West, but sort of geopolitically in it with all sorts of you know, differences, but basically on the side of um, trying to make, make, things, make, make, make things work and calm things down, which I think is the sort of epitome of Western civilization. Um, I think they haven't, yeah, the, the, and this is some really tragic details of the things the spies were tasked with. One of them was spy, tasked with trying to find out about the world gold market. And I think that's sort of classic Czechist misunderstanding, that they think there must be a secret conspiracy behind the gold price. Let's find out who the master manipulators are and you know, bug their phones, you know, send Anna Chapman to sleep with their assistants and yeah, we'll find out how the world gold market works. Actually, if you want to find out how the world gold market works, read the FT. There's a commodities page of the FT. <laughs> it's, really, it's, it's, it's not that big a secret. So I think the idea that behind everything there's a sort of, is, is a secret is, 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 is a misunderstanding. But that doesn't mean that the, you know, we do have secrets and interests that they really want to find out. You know, they're trying to find out the acoustic signatures of our new submarines. They're trying to find out the um, friend or foe identifiers of our, of our planes. They're trying to find out whether we really want to defend the Baltic states. If, the, if there was a military threat there, they want to find out what our energy security is. How do we fix our gas prices? Are we serious about building pipelines? There's all sorts of things that matter that they are trying to find out. And I think the sort of crucial point is that even if 90% or even 95% of their efforts are wasted and misdirected, we still ought to worry about the other, other 5%. Um, in terms of where they, um, the easiest place for them to spy is you know on their home 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 turf because they're under no kind it's not hostile territory for them so they've moved back in I mean the Russian intelligence has moved back into Ukraine big time Ukraine was a, a problem for them it was a very the CIA loved Ukraine five years ago six years ago now it's a it's um it's proving it's proving very difficult um, and but I think that they they've got a huge advantage because of the openness and the way people move around. And there's an example which I mentioned in the book, which I can't go into details about, but there's a particular office in the EU which deals with something which is of real importance. It's one of the things the EU does that really matters. It matters you know, to Britain, among other things. And all the secretaries in the office concerned were born in the former Soviet Union. They've all, got West, they've all got EU passports now, and it would be completely illegal and morally reprehensible to, to do anything about that. Why shouldn't you? If you're, you happen, your name is you know, Ivanova or whatever, and you have a French passport or Belgian passport, whatever, yeah, why shouldn't you get a job in the EU? It's perfectly allowed. And yet, you know, my friend who works in that office, when he's negotiating with the Russians on matters of real importance, says he can, he can tell the Russians know his negotiating position. They've read his emails. We've a question to the balcony. You, madam, and then there's another one in the centre there. Um, may I ask you to expand on something you said in the introduction about um, the influence of Russian money in London? Gladly. <laughs> it's an absolute scandal, this. I mean, this is, you know, I get so incensed 
by the way in which we are. And I, and I think if you imagine that you turned up in London with a suitcase of Fabergé eggs, you know, something really, really valuable, and you said these eggs belonged to this guy called Hodokovsky, and well, he was quite a bad man, so he went to prison and he lost all his eggs, and there was then an auction. And my mates bid in the auction, details a bit messy, but anyway, the fact is they're mine now. And I want to sell them in London. And I need a lawyer, I need a banker, I need a PR company, and all the rest of it in London. I think even now, someone might say, hang on a moment. You turn up with a stolen oil company, Rosneft. And I didn't mind saying this on the record, and they can, you know, it's, 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 um, I've, and I've said it, said it before, and they haven't sued me, so. Um, bring it on. But you know, Ros Rosneft was based on the expropriation of UCOS. I hold no particular candle for Hodokovsky, but $8 billion of Western shareholders' money went south when UCOS was expropriated. And even then, you can perfectly well say, emerging market, bad privatization, we're going to nationalize UCOS. Well, that's fine. Okay, do that if you want. It just happened in Argentina, happens all the time. But then to give the assets of UCOS to Sechin, Putin's mate from the GRU, that's bad. And it's not as if it went to the benefit of the Russian taxpayers. Read the, the Rosneft IPO document. It's about 1,500 pages long. But deep inside it, you'll find a sentence that says Rosneft is not running the interest of the shareholders. It's not running the interest of the Russian, government, the Russian taxpayer. Look at the way Rosneft sells its oil and who benefits from it. Um, at this point, I have to slightly pause because um, the economists fought a libel action which cost us a lot of money and I don't want to go into details because um, that would get my colleagues into trouble. But there's a, it, this really, really stinks. And Rosneft was allowed to list in London on the London Stock Exchange. And banks were queuing up for that. And it happens all over the place. You get these really, really dodgy people. And they turn up and they buy, hypothetically, they might want to buy a football club, for example. <laughs> Or they might hypothetically want to buy a newspaper or a bookstore or whatever, you know, coffee shop. I don't want, I'm making no specific allegation here. And we just sit there and let it happen. And money is being laundered here. And I, I talked to a very rich and very dodgy Russian when I was based in, based in Moscow. And I said, what do you do if you want to launder money? And he said, if it's a small amount, we go to Cyprus or Riga. If it's a large amount, we go to London. And at the time of the Rosneft um, uh, IPO, They'd gone to New York, the New York Stock Exchange said, no way, you don't pass our smell test. Smell test. And the London Stock Exchange immediately had a roadshow in Moscow to highlight what they euphemistically called our more flexible listing requirements. <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, it's a brilliant question. Thank you for asking. It's, it's, it's disgraceful. It's not only Britain. And in fact, I think we've now tight, tight, tightened up. And on the kind of, you know, journalistic telegraph, I hear all sorts of interesting stories about heads of due diligence from big Western banks being fired being questioned by the FSA and the City of London Police and all sorts of interesting things going on. So it's gradually tightening up here. I think the FSA is beginning to do a very good job and they've succeeded in keeping some very dodgy Russian banks out of, out of London despite enormous pressure to let them in. Um, I, you know, one could point to Austria, for example, as a country which doesn't seem to have these attacks of conscience. But it's really difficult. You, know, you have these companies which have hard former government officials, sometimes very senior government officials, have members of the House of Lords working for them, putting huge pressure, saying, let us into London. Yeah, we're just another big emerging market. To which I say, well, yeah, what about Magnitsky? 
but it, it's it, it's the it's the it, I think it's a real problem with the way that sort of we, we look at we look at capitalism. We think money doesn't smell, and actually it can smell really really bad. And it can be drenched in blood, and there's a sort of the moral compass just gets switched off when we get to the city. And it's funny that the people who are most you know, often very very keen to say let's implement the Magnitsky list, which is a list of sixty named people who are involved in the murder of Magnitsky or the perpetration of the fraud. And they say, well, that's great, but why don't we also open money laundering investigations? Because all this, you know, tens of millions of dollars of this money was laundered. Even the Swiss, who are not known for their acute sense of smell where money's concerned, sorry, no offence on here, Swiss, the Swiss have opened a money laundering investigation of Credit Suisse into one of the accounts there. And you say to the city, these people, you know, Mr. Valiant for Truth, and let's not let them come in here with visas, you say, well, why don't we do something about the city? Ah, oh, well, that would be very difficult right now because, you know, they're in a very precarious position. And, you know, basically, we need all the money we can get. So you're, you're spot on with your question. I wish I had a more encouraging answer. Right, we've uh, two questions. A young lady there with her hand up who's been very patient, and then there's a chap in the middle here who will go next. Hi, I'm Helia, and I'm a former student as well. I was wondering if you had any insight into the psychology of spying, both for um, people like Donald Heathfield, who are out um, in the field for um, several years, but also for agents who um, are able to um, give intelligence against the country of their original nationality. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a chapter on, on spycraft in the, in the book. Um, it's very difficult, and you've got to... I think that, the, in a way, the easiest position to be in is the ideological defector or convert and someone like if you're Gordievsky or Polyakov or um, Penkovsky or one of these great figures of the of the Cold War um, and, you, and you can read about if you read Tars of Tars of Terror which is the one of the classic defector memoirs it's about a guy who was the head of cryptography in the KGB and he simply worked out for himself that communism sucked and was based on the bone, built on the bones of millions of innocent people and having decided that communism sucked and it was all wrong he then with enormous ingenuity and difficulty managed to make contact with um, the CIA spied for them and they smuggled him out and it's a really gripping account as you can just see he just account, recounts how he and I think from in, if, you, if you come from that point of view um, you know, the moral clarity of the Cold War um, it's psychologically easier it's much more difficult if you're doing it for money um, because there was the question of maybe somebody else offers more it's difficult also if the intelligence service running someone who's basically doing it for money because you think well somebody else might offer more um, the um, I think working against your own country you know, now, the the pitch that Western intelligence normally makes to to Russians is this is corrupt. These people are enriching themselves to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, and you know, by helping the West, you can um, maybe do something to stop them. So instead of being the sort of the the communist regime, it's the criminal regime. So that's a kind of pitch. The, way, the other way around, um, going for Western hypocrisy is very good. The, KG, the SVR is very good at trade, playing on anti-Westernism and on the feeling that it's all a farce and it's all about money. And it was very interesting. I mean, Hermann Sin, who I was able to interview at length in prison, um, the Estonian, um, I was really interested how they'd managed to recruit him. How do you? I mean, Estonia, which suffered so much under Soviet occupation, incredible suffering, deportations, there's a ruination of the country. And how could someone like, like Sim then agree to spy for the successor regime to the country that had, had, had ruined his country? And what they did was a very, very clever mixture. It was a bit of blackmail. They'd found out bad stuff about him, and they said, yeah, we can get you into trouble. 
it was a bit of money. They, yeah, he was short of money, everyone was short of money, but they, they'd spotted he was quite short of money and they were willing to pay him. But it was mainly flattery, and they said, look, these young guys running Estonia, they don't really know what's going on. Yeah, half of them are working for the Americans or the British. They're just, you know, Estonia's just a pawn on the chessboard. Um, by helping us, you create a kind of balance. You're making the world a safer place. And you, Herman, you really understand what's going on. You know, you're a man of destiny. And so they inflate, and this guy who's basically was a policeman, and nothing against policemen, he was not, he, we're not talking Henry Kissinger here. Um, and they, they sort of puffed him up to the fact, to the point that he believed that he was, you know, the hinge of history. And he was then rather disappointed when they then um, uh, ended his uh, relationship with the SVR and wouldn't even give him, they, they told him they'd promoted him to kind of major general in Russian intelligence or something, and then when he asked for his, um, they said, actually, we don't have major generals. And the whole thing was kind of, um, yeah, he, he was very disappointed by the end. But yeah, it, was, it was that feeling of flattery, which I think is the most potent thing. You can get almost anybody to do anything if you flatter them enough. Um, the other thing, which is, you know, is a very um, powerful tool, is the false flag. And I go into that in the book as well. If you need, you find someone who is, you, know, you want a conservative, got a conservative American Christian, you want him to spy for you, and you're Russian. Well, don't say, I'm from Russia. You say, I'm from Israel. I'm from the Mossad. You're helping Israel by helping me. How are they going to check you're not from Mossad? And there's many, many examples of people, including people who are passionate supporters of Israel, who end up spying for Syrian intelligence, for example, thinking that they were doing their bit for the Mossad. And vice versa, people who thought they were doing their bit for the Palestinians, and actually they were spying for Mossad. Because the Mossad guy was, again, false flag. So you, you, if you've got this kind of confidence trickster ability as an intelligence officer to make people believe things, it's no coincidence, actually, as I say in the book, one of the first things you do at Fort Moncton, which is where my six trains its spies, the first thing they send you out to do is to go and borrow 50 quid from a total stranger. So if you can do that, you know, you're well set up for your future career in espionage. So, young man up there. Um, from your conversations with people in the intelligence community, uh, it, both in Britain and in America, do you sense that the uh, Russian espionage threat is becoming a drain on the resources of both MI5 and FBI, encountering other threats to national security, such as um, from the Chinese and um, also Islamic terrorists? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think we, we, we made a, hu a huge leap of faith. I mean, I, I would leave the FBI a bit out of it because they are still, and they have such colossal resources that they can still do, that they're not really constrained the way we are. But back in the 80s, the single most important thing around my five was countering Russian, Russian espionage. And they did really, really thorough vetting. So, and they scrutinized visa applications very carefully. And if someone came in, um, they would quite happily spend six months just wondering, is this person really doing a PhD at LSE or are they up, up to something else? And it was, a, it was a really big deal. Now it's, by their account, um, I think 3% of their budget. I mean, counter-terrorism counter, I mean, counter is so important that yeah, the vast majority of, expenses of, of, of money goes on counter-terrorism. Then within counter-espionage, you've got the Chinese and the Russians to worry about and a few other um, countries too, but chiefly those. And, so, and the 
And there's also political pressure not to offend the Russians. And I get into this a bit in the book, that the it's quite often we have cases in the EU, without being any more specific, where people are caught spying for the Russians, or under suspicion spying for the Russians. And often it's a tip-off from the, you know, the Americans through a penetration agent in Russia see there's a leak in country X, and they quietly go to country X and say, can you have a look? We think there's something you know, dodgy going on here. And it pretty much homes in that this chap is you know, sleeping with an Anna Chapman-style woman or getting... You know, whatever, consultancy payments for something. And then what happens? Well, 99 times out of 100, and I, I don't think I'm, or maybe 95 times out of 100, the answer is nothing. They're just paid off, early retirement, transfer. You know, for goodness sake, lots, let's, let's not have a scandal. Because no, I mean, first of all, it looks embarrassing in the country concerned, if you say, in you know, country, to take an absolutely random example, this is in particular, but say Belgium the head of you know, energy security at the Belgian economics ministry turns out to be on the Gazprom payroll. And this is completely hypothetical. I'm not making it absolutely just take, take example taken at random. And what do they do? Well, they don't want to have a big fuss. They just pay them off. Say, go into early retirement or go and, you know, go and do something else. Go and be the economics attaché in Brazil. And so this happens again and again and again. And it, sends, it means there's no real penalty. It's quite rare to find someone who's in jail in the EU for spying the Russians. Hermann Sim is a really, really rare example, because the Estonians had the balls to say, okay, let's just suck it up. Yeah, this is really humiliating for us, but the one thing we can do is try and prosecute him, put him in jail, and clean it up properly. A lot of countries don't do that. There's a lady there, and then there's a chap at the Should we start taking questions in a, in a bunch now? Cause I think Actually, that's a good idea. So yeah. if we take that one, then that one, then that one. I was just interested why you were arrested four times and then finally deported. Okay. That's <laughs> the first one, not chop the back. I have two questions. The first one is about the threats to Western infrastructure and the serious threat to innocence, because I think that seems to be one of the themes through your research. And uh, the second question is about Western money in Russian politics and if the allegations are serious enough to... Uh, mm -hmm. worth discussing. We'll take those two. Okay. Um, I was, I entered the, I was a correspondent behind the Iron Curtain, and I was constantly breaking the law, and so I was um, quite often arrested. And I was deported, I entered the Soviet Union illegally, and um, was deported as a result, and I'm very proud of it. Um, if you want more, read the book. Um, <laughs> uh, infrastructure. Um, the um, yeah, I think and basically you, you, the the, I mean, the way to look at Russia is is it's a kind of criminal syndicate that is interested in both profit and power. They want to keep power inside Russia. They want to exert power in the West, and they want to turn a handsome profit from doing it. And those things, to some extent, um, clash and to some extent reinforce each other. So they're very interested in getting control of pipelines, of oil refineries, of things that they can create rents out of. The absolutely ideal thing is to have something like Nord Stream, a gas pipeline that feeds gas into the EU at a price that your German friends will fix and delivers you a nice healthy return. Um, so there's, yeah, so that's what, and, and I, I think it's brilliant what the EU's doing, which is, if anyone said to me two years ago that you'd have the EU competition authorities raiding 40 Gazprom offices around Europe for market rigging, 
and seizing documents. I wish they'd worn ski masks. It would have made the Russians feel they were at home. Um, but you know, they, they went in and they got, you know, they took documents and computers away because the Russians are, are, are running riot over the EU energy market. And the EU's finally start, started to do something. They've got the political clout to do it, and that's great. We need to do a lot more, um, particularly as Russia's old model of using the east-west pipeline monopoly to exert pressure is going. They're moving into different, different, different things of, of, of downstream and midstream. Western money in Russian politics, I think it's a bit of red herring, really. I, I mean, I, I talk a lot to the Russian opposition. I've never, ever met anyone who said, please give me money. Yeah, they, there's plenty of money. The Russian middle class is perfectly capable of financing anything it wants to do. Yeah, there's, there's, there's Russian oligarchs who will finance the opposition. In fact, the opposition will often turn down that sort of money. They don't want to, what they wanted to do is to stop laundering the proceeds of crime here. That's what they wanted to do. And they also want us to stop, as Nemtsov, Milov, and um, Rishkov and the others said in the uh, some concluding page of my book, it's a letter from the sort of leaders of the Russian opposition to the West saying, this is what we want you to do. Stop treating this criminal regime as if it was a normal country. Top of the middle there. And then, sir, if you could pass the, the microphone along when you're finished. Yeah, sure. Do you think there's an FSB spy here today with us? Do I think there's an FSB spy here today with us? <clears throat> um, I'm. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, let's take some more questions. Yeah, I think about quickly. That. <laughs> yeah. Joe's one. And, and yeah. Um, what, what do you think the motivation of the FSB is? Is, is it about kind of giving Putin like these, these these secrets about the kind of what the gold market or? You know, invasion plans, or, or, or is it actually kind of more of a criminal enterprise, similar to two hundred and thirty million fraud, or money laundering, or you know, goodness knows what, mm -hmm. you know, Donald Heathrow Field was up to. But so that, so that sounds to me more like the latter than the former. Okay, um, the United States has given uh, two hundred million dollars since two thousand and nine to uh, Russian NGOs. And uh, there's another $50 million planned for Russian NGOs. Now, the Putinists, the pro-regime people, the, the Nashi types, um, claim that this money is in fact, some of this money is in fact going to Russian opposition parties and that therefore the opposition parties are bought. Don't you think that perhaps the fact that they're funding so much money to the opposition um, is becoming counterproductive? Don't you think there's a case to be made that they should stop this funding? Yeah. You asked for a difficult question, and uh, yeah. I thought I'd give you one. It's very good. Okay, well, let me go in reverse order. And um, it's, a, it's very nice to have people in the audience who know more than I do about these things. Um, so thanks for that. But I, I think I mean, a lot of NGOs are nothing to do with politics. You know, stopping you know, AIDS and TB in Russian pr prisons, well, that's, that's a big NGO. I mean, Hillary Clinton's really, really keen on... Um, prisons, women, children, these sort of you know, soft social issues, and the bulk of American money goes into these, and into these sort of apolitical kind of welfare things. But I, I'm against, I mean, I've, I've seen this, and um, Yaroslav at the back may, may, may disagree with me, but I, I think that the, the danger of giving money to opposition groups is it encourages this kind of grant-sucking mentality where people are really, really good at going to seminars in the West and making a case what they do. And they neglect the, the kind of hard graft of doing politics, doing politics at home. So I'm, 
And I, I just think it, it, you could make a case in the 1990s that it, I, mean, I, I ran a newspaper in Estonia in the early 90s, and for some reason I've never been able to understand, the American government suddenly gave us um, six laptops and four desktops, and it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's fantastic. It transformed our ability to do independent journalism. And there was, it was really no strings attached. They just kind of, we got these facts from America saying, please fill in what you want. So I thought it was a joke. And I filled in and said, yes, we like modems, modems in those days, very important. And I think a fax machine. And about a month later, um, someone from the embassy phoned up and said, here are your computers. I thought, I thought it was Christmas. And, I, and in that day, it really, I mean, we were paying journalists salaries of $100 a month and a computer cost $1,000, and so it was a really, really big deal. And, and this was happening all over the place, people just getting these sort of... So I think, you know, in, in the conditions of poverty, that made a difference. Russia's not a poor country now. It's a trillion-dollar economy. So, you know, does a few million here or there to opposition making a difference? No, I don't, I, I don't agree. Um, is the FSB here... I think they probably are more interested in what's going on in, in other places. If they wanted to find out, I don't think it would be a problem. Um, the motivation is... As I said before, it's about power and money. It's, the, it's wanting to get your snout in the trough, which is a big weakness in the system because corruption sort of corrodes it. But it's also this feeling of wanting to know what's going on. Nothing happens that we don't know about. Um, nothing happens that we don't like. And particularly if you, if you want to see where the... F, I mean, the FSB is just one of three agencies, but what the FSB is really interested in is what do Russians do abroad. So if you have a Russian society, LSE, that would be the thing the FSB would be interested in. And they want to know, is anyone from that, you know, how many of these Russians have got British passports? How many of them might be going on to work for the government? Is there someone there who, you know, who we ought to be latching on to? Maybe someone's going to be working as an intern in Parliament, for example. Are there any, you know, ones who might be quite attractive, who might be able to sort of, you know, is there someone who's got family back in Russia that we can put a squeeze on? It's a very common FSB thing. They find someone who's in a position in the West, which could be useful for them, they then find a way of squeezing them through their family back in Russia. So, oh dear, your beloved you know, younger brother is going to be conscripted and sent to Chechnya unless you help us. That was a very big one a few years ago. Or your dad's business is going to have this terrible tax inspection. He's going to be bankrupt. He may end up like Magnitsky in jail. Or on the other hand, maybe you could help us. So that, that's the sort of um, modus operandi. Last tranche of questions then. Um, perhaps a... Yeah. So, I, can I just say, have we got any Russians here? I'd love to have a question from a Russian. Maybe they're undercover. Nits on us, beznas. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Um, during your presentation, I actually couldn't help but wonder about you know, the risk, or to what extent, as a journalist, you're at risk as well, you know, like digging to, for this kind of information and getting the truth out there. Okay, next one. I think there was no hand up there. Is that right, sir? Yeah. Hi. Um, I was just curious, because uh, we've mentioned them a couple of times, to what extent do you think the FSB might have infiltrated the uh, new opposition groups in Russia that have been demonstrating over the last few months? And uh, on a related point, might there be any sympathy for the liberals among, not the FSB leaders, but maybe some of the rank and file? Mm-hmm. Anything further from the floor, just before we end? Yeah. Oh, sir. Lady at the front as well. Oh, is there a lady at the front? Sorry. Match up there in the blue jumper. Very simple question. Has, that, has that anybody thought ever that you're a spy? <laughs> Very straightforward one there. 
and the lady in the front there. I was just wondering about this video of Zygmunt Skudirka. Can we watch that, or is that not working? Okay. <laughs> I guess you're from Lithuania, yeah? Yeah, okay. Russia. Okay. Um, well, I think when I left Moscow, um, very interesting things happened to my luggage on the way in and the way out. On the way in, everything was kind of hideously marked about. On the way out, all my kind of really nice journalistic kit was nicked. I had this fantastic solar powered, um, solar powered charger which would charge any device um, wherever you were in the world. Had a fantastic shortwave radio antenna which meant I could get the BBC World Service wherever I was and various other things. They all disappeared. And instead, I had a complete set of the James Bond books. Um, and I was terribly excited about it. They were, they were very ancient English paperbacks. And for a blissful moment, I thought they were actually quite valuable. So I thought, this would be fantastic. You know, the FSB's given me, by mistake, a really valuable a complete set, you know, the, the whole lot. In, in, and, and tragically, they were all just not quite first edition, so they were worth nothing. Um, so I, I, mean, I hope that answers. And, and I... Um, I, um, I've still got them somewhere. Um, but I think you know, the, the Russians assume that everybody's a spy. You know, their default setting is any foreigner's a spy. Because they think we're like them. So you know, if during the Cold War, all Soviet journalists were basically spies. So they assumed all Westerners were spies. It hasn't changed that much. They assume that even if you're not a spy at the beginning, that if MI6 wants you to be a spy, they will threaten your family or do something bad to you. So in the end, you would do what they want. So there's in that sort of paranoid mi mindset, um, which is sad in a way. I mean, it's uh, um, yeah. I think that espionage is basically quite quite boring and quite silly. And yeah, in a healthy country, nobody really cares. You know, who knows in Denmark? I wrote an article. Who knows the name of the head of Danish military intelligence? It's just another bureaucrat. As you go east, people start really, really minding about this stuff. Um, the um, I'm sure the opposition's infiltrated by the FSB. Um, it's one of the things they're best at is setting up sort of slightly bogus organisations in order to see who joins and, 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 and what happens. But I think in a way it's tricky for them because there, there isn't really an opposition. You know, there's this, you know, they, they believe there's a mastermind out there that you know, somewhere in London is you know, Berezovsky, Edward Lucas and MI6 are sitting together kind of you know, working out a plan to topple Putin and if only they can sort of you know, infiltrate enough they'll find out what we're up to and actually it's just not like that you know, there's, there's no, there's no the, 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 the opposition is a symptom of the misrule of Russia. It's full of people who are just absolutely fed up with the indignity of daily life and the feeling that millions of dollars are being stolen all the time and that every time they interact with the state they're humiliated and ripped off. You want, you know, and they're used to choice and excellence in their private lives and they want choice and excellence in their public life um, in, the, in the public space as well. Does the, I think your question about the FSB having sympathy for the opposition is very interesting because during the, the Soviet period the there were bits of the KGB that really understood the Soviet system was broken. It wasn't that they sort of particularly liked the West, but they could see that the planned economy didn't work and that the one-party state and sort of total control was becoming more and more difficult as technology and change in the world become more complex. So they thought, and you know, the FSB, KGB people have written, written memoirs about this, they thought we have to change, we have to adapt. And they kind of turned their power into wealth and then their wealth back into power again, and that's pretty much what we've got with, with Putin. So I think there's probably some sympathy 
within bits of the regime for a change and a change of generation. And certainly you know, some of the Russians I talked to who used to revere Putin and you know, wouldn't hear a word against him now think this is ridiculous. They, they want to be, I mean, you can be a pretty nasty FSB guy and you can hate the West and be quite greedy and corrupt and you can also want to be able to drive from Moscow to Vladivostok on a proper road which after $1.3 trillion in excess on and gas revenues in 12 years in power and total unrestrained political power, this regime has not been able to do. It's quite amazing. This is like not being able to drive from you know, Land's End to John O'Groats on a proper road at the end of the North Sea Arbor with this incredible amount of money. And it, so I think there is, there is frustration and, and I think there are you know, people who would... And that's why I said you've got to separate the, the business model of the regime and the personality, that people would be happy to change the personality, the first person, as he's called. They'd be happy to change the business model, but they want to keep the regime. And that's, in a way, what I'm worried about, because guess what will happen when that happens? The world will say, oh, yippee, we've now got Mr. Smirnov or Mr. Ivanov, and he's modern, he speaks English, and he's all great, and you know, we just love him. And it'll be exactly the same as we had with Gorbachev, with Yeltsin, with Putin, and actually before that with Khrushchev. Um, where people think, thank goodness he's not as bad as the last guy, let's embrace him. And actually, you have to be pretty cold-eyed and say what's, 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 what's really changed. Um, Kudirka, um, I have a film about him, and if we talk afterwards, I'll make sure you get to see him. Um, Yes, I think that was it. Is it we done? I think that's it. So before we extend our, our, our very warm and, and, and uh, sincere thanks to Edward for a, a very engaging, very interesting, very stimulating uh, lecture this evening. Now, a quick reminder, uh, this is part of the LSE Public Lecture Series. You can find out more details on the LSE homepage for any other things you find interesting. And secondly, of course, a reminder to buy said book outside from Bloomsbury. Uh, and uh, the stewards then will, will tell you the procedure for coming back through. Edward's uh, very kindly agreed, I think, to, to sign a number of copies. Is that all right? So thanks again to Edward Lucas for an excellent <laughs>